Episode 131, Uncivil Wars. I'm Assistant Curator Merle Riedel, and you're listening to an April 20th, 2011 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. I'm coming home, I'm coming home, tell the world I'm coming home, let the rain wash away all the pain. During the American Civil War, black soldiers were rare and black officers were almost non-existent. 30 years later, Major John Brown, a black man from Topeka, led soldiers to Cuba to fight the Spanish-American War. Join Museum Specialist Donna Ray Pearson and me as we examine a saber used by this non-traditional leader. Born in the slave south, Brown found himself defending the civil rights of Cubans while African Americans in the U.S. faced the rise of Jim Crow laws. Then we go behind the scenes with an amateur archaeologist that made one of the most significant discoveries in the history of North America. And he did it in Morris County, Kansas, when he was just 19 years old. Finally, in Six Degrees of William Allen White, we salute pending royal nuptials by connecting White, a small-town newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to Kate Middleton, fiancé to Britain's future king. Was White once thrown out of a royal wedding reception for eating all the mints? Find out when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. But first, Uncivil Wars. Good morning, Donna Ray. Good morning, Ma. Today we are discussing a saber that belonged to Major John M. Brown, who is a black officer in the Kansas National Guard during the Spanish-American War. It's, uh, it's a very nice-looking saber. It's kind of silver, cavalry style, uh, and it's got gold trim on the hilt. Mm. And I think it's actually got kind of shark skin uh, on the handle yeah. itself. And there's some kind of starburst design on it, too. So Is there? Yes. Well, the saber, uh, as we said, belonged to Major Brown. He was a black man born in the South, um, and Brown faced a lot of challenges early on. Uh, but he kind of always seemed to be born to lead men. Donna Ray, who was John Brown? Um, and is he connected to the other John Brown of Kansas <laughs> this, territorial fame? Yes. How many John Browns can you have in one state? Actually, this John Brown is not, that I can find anyway, connected to the other John Brown, even though they did end up in some of the same places, like in Ohio. Major John Brown was born in Kentucky during slave times, but I can't tell if he was actually a slave or not, because even before the Civil War, it looks like he went to Oberlin, Ohio, and got his education, which makes me wonder if he was a slave or if he wasn't a slave, So, um, because that was more of a rarity than the exception. But after he went to school, he, he, for some reason, went back to the South and ended up in Mississippi. And he did some good things down there. He um, was a sheriff and a tax collector during Reconstruction. 
And um, he actually was also a colonel in the Mississippi militia. So he was an educated black man, and he was kind of that that um, uh, interesting black person right during the Reconstruction because there was a very small window where it, blacks in the South actually did have the ability to hold office, exactly. and, they, they, and, and that window closed quickly as, as they rewrote laws yes, in the South. Right, and I think that's probably what drove him. He probably saw the transitioning happening after the Civil War and during Reconstruction. Then he headed up here to Kansas. And in Kansas, um, he became a school teacher for a little while. And he owned a, a fruit farm. I cannot figure out what kind of fruit it was, but he had a 100-acre fruit farm up in northern Topeka. So, impressive. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of impressive. I don't know why, but it is. <laughs> and um, he also... Um, was part of the Relief Association, the Kansas Relief Association, that helped blacks migrating from the South to Kansas during that time period. So, But even in Kansas, he was involved in politics. Um, he was known actually pretty well throughout the state. So he could command an audience. By 1898, Brown was leading the 23rd Kansas Volunteer Regiment to Cuba to guard Spanish POWs, which is a very strange combination of events. It really is. Um, and this is, you know, this is this is as far as military wise, this is, this is kind of what what made him well known. Um, what were Black Americans doing in Cuba, and why is it called the Spanish American War, which is kind of the umbrella term used for? Um, uh, a lot of these events right. that happened. Right. Well, this splendid little war, as we sometimes call it, and you know, it was only 10 weeks long. And blacks got there as part of fighting units, and some of them actually ended up staying afterwards. But America went to war with Spain. Spain. Okay, keep, stay with me. America went to war with Spain uh-huh. over the fact that Cubans were not receiving their civil rights. So Americans during Reconstruction, post-Reconstruction, Jim Crow laws got mad at another country for not giving them their civil rights and went to war with them. Then, under mysterious circumstances, a ship, a battleship, the Maine, got sunk, and the country went all crazy over it. (laughs) And so we declared war. And then they declared war, and we ended up in Cuba. So Brown was a black officer leading black troops in the 1890s, which is very interesting um, because just a few years earlier in the Civil War, the concept of black officers was very, very rare. It really was. Um, It was usually white officers that were assigned to lead uh, what was then during the Civil War newly formed black units. And just the existence of black units was a bit controversial. Um, so what changed in that period between the Civil War and our splendid little Spanish-American <laughs> War? Um, w- what changed that allowed black officers to be actually leading troops to foreign countries? Well, I think there is, a, I think two things really changed, you know, in big picture-wise. The 15th Amendment happened, and so blacks were granted political rights when they were able to then put, allow to put pressure on 
um, political leaders, such as our governor at that time, um, to form black troops. And if you're going to have a black troop, you need to have a black officer in charge. And then the activism through the media. Um, there is a lot of discussion and debate through the media. Do we want to go to war when we don't have our own rights? But if we go to war, um, we can prove that we are entitled to these rights. So Brown, from the beginning, he was a recruit. He was appointed as an officer and led his troops, and there was a ton of community support for him. So, Do you think he realized the significance of being a black officer? Oh, yes. There, there were... Um, it wasn't just a job for him. No, it wasn't just a job for him. I mean, considering his, the previous things that he's done, he was considered a leader in, commu- in the community, and um, he would have been held in pretty high regard, it, you know, especially not just in Topeka, where he, was origi- where he came to stay, but across the state of Kansas. You can look at black newspapers from that time period, and there were articles galore about this officer and some of the other ones there is actually in total 30 black officers over the 23rd though black men were commanding national guard units racial discrimination was in fact on the rise in the u.s Um, and you talked about it a little bit previously the paradox of being african-american soldiers going to cuba to, to kind of reinforce the human rights or the civil rights uh, of a of an underclass of a racial underclass and yet Jim Crow laws are being written in the U.S. You're, in fact, losing your civil liberties as you defend a foreign uh, country's Country's civil liberties. Do you think soldiers in that unit, do you think Brown or soldiers in his unit, do you think, did they realize the paradox to that? Oh, I'm sure they did. I I mean, really, there was a lot of community discussion and debate, you know. But the tide turned, and I think it was really, again, about another another chance to prove that we are mentally, physically capable of doing any other job that any other American can. And we should have the right to fight for our country. You mentioned that some of the soldiers from from the 23rd um, actually stayed in Cuba. Yes, they did. I mean, do you think they stayed in Cuba because they actually saw more opportunity? I mean, did they they see a more opportunity and more... I guess, equity in Cuba than they did in the U.S.? I think they did. Um, during that time, Cuba was still, you know, a forming nation in that regard. And so they saw more people that look like them, especially if you're from Kansas, and they saw people excelling, you know, regardless. There was no color line at that time that I've been able to see or find. So they were able to... Um, to get involved in the local Cuban community, marry, and develop businesses. So to my knowledge, the, the ones that opted to stay behind never came back. All right, Donna Ray, thanks for telling us about Major Brown and the 23rd Kansas Volunteers. Well, thanks for chatting with me. Today's Kansas Quiz question is, What black military unit during the Civil War was the first recruited in northern states for service? I keep my eyes wide open all the time. In 1962, young Jim McHenry took a summer job helping archaeologists sift dirt in Morris County, Kansas. While there, McHenry unearthed a small clay fragment that looked like a human face. 
Research soon proved that this effigy head was over 5,000 years old, making it one of the oldest artifacts in North America. Fifty years later, we talked to McHenry, now the Director of Development at the Topeka Shawnee County Public Library, about his experience as a 19-year-old boy that discovered a cornerstone of Kansas history. You were part of the team that first discovered this effigy head in Morris County, Kansas. What were you and the team doing in Morris County? Well, we were excavating uh, areas that were slated to be inundated and for a series of reservoirs. And in the case of Morris County, that, that was the Council Grove Reservoir. And there was a federal antiquities law basically that said that you, the state of Kansas couldn't put that water, put that land under water until it had been explored. And so our crews, uh, based with the Kansas State Historical Society, were there to explore certain sites. And the one where I found the fired clay effigy was one of the more interesting ones. I remember finding the object quite vividly. Uh, we were changing levels. You know, as we would move down, we'd go down about a half a foot at a time. And we sharpened our shovels so that uh, we, we could, you know, sort of slice through the earth. And also, we would be able to clean areas up so that they could be photographed if there were features that, that needed to be recorded. So I'm busy sort of changing levels, and my shovel starts down, and I hit something. And by then, I, I'd been trained well enough to say, well, don't just <laughs> jam your foot down and ram through it. Mm -hmm. Be curious about what this might be. So I carefully back my shovel out, and I get my trowel, and I get down, and, and, and very slowly we start to expose this object. Well, we, we couldn't figure it out. It, it was unlike anything that any of us had ever seen. And then, of course, once we, once it had been lifted out of the ground and, you know, you knock the dirt off of it, here's this, you know, what, what seemed to be very clearly an attempt at human representation. Mm -hmm. You know, you have, you've noted the, the eyes, the, the prom, one of the prominent features is the nose, and then there are these interesting striations that suggest a headband and maybe some hair. I was, of course, thrilled uh, to have been the one who happened to stumble upon it. Can you tell me, like, um, just kind of set up the scene a little bit? Like, how old were you yourself at this point? And what was the environment that you working that you were working? Was this this was summertime, so it was hot. Correct. It was a, it, it was hot, muggy weather. Uh, this site was located very near a creek. Uh, which made sense because the people who's, who'd been there 5,000 years ago, as you point out, uh, clearly used this as a, a stopping point. They were hunter-gatherers and uh, we found a lot of tools and other things that suggested that while they were, in, in, to a certain extent, transient, they, they still probably would come back to this area. I was 18 years old. I, it was before my freshman year in college. I wanted a good summer job, and by then I earned my spurs with Tom Whitty, who was the chief, the state archaeologist. And and so it's it's a crew of guys. Uh, we called, I think in the in the report, we're called laborers. We called ourselves <laughs> shovel bums, <laughs> which was if you were shovel bum, 
I, I think when I first started uh, in Pomona, I was working for 75 cents an hour. Oh, wow. Uh, plus room and board. Oh. <laughs> and the room and board was significant because at that age, I was, of course, eating people out of house and home, my family in particular. So they were glad to have me mm-hmm. <laughs> shipped off to somebody else's care. So you were an 18-year-old kid that had just graduated from high, high school. Correct. And you found what could potentially be the oldest artifact in North America. Yes, it, <laughs> improbable as it seems. And of course, we, we couldn't help ourselves. We had to begin speculating, you know. What did this early, very early Native American artist have in mind? Was he trying to represent something religious or spiritual? Was he trying to honor, say, a chief with uh, a representation of that individual somehow? Or was he just making something, making the head of a doll for a child? Uh, It's impossible to know. I suppose at some level, this fired clay effigy head uh, represents the enduring quality of art. And and there there was a second uh, fired clay effigy head found it had been broken off at the chin portion, as I recall, and it wasn't quite as clearly defined as the one that I found, but it was clearly, you know... Related. Yes, headed in the same direction. And that, in a sense, it was, I think it was a good thing that we found that second one, because this then didn't look like quite such a fluke, you know? Mm -hmm. You know, you're not an archeologist today. Um, Do you still retain an interest in archeology? span uh, has it influenced what you do uh, in your day-to-day job? I love archaeology because for me it's it's a, a method of time travel where you almost step across time and you're interacting with people in their lives. I think I felt that particularly strongly in the Wilson dig. There was a rock shelter that we were excavating very near this other site. And that had been used for years by hunting parties moving through. But as we went down into that rock shelter, we found an infant burial. There was something about that. As you might imagine, a group of guys living out on the prairie, uh, life can get a little coarse, as the language does too. Mm -hmm. But you know, when we found that infant burial and realized what we were looking at, it was like a... A quiet spell, you know, came over the group. All of us, you know, sort of sensed that some Native American family had been there, the child had died, and they had decided to bury their child here in this rock shelter. It was like a a, a mausoleum. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I have always been interested in archaeology. I think archaeology had a very fundamental effect on my future because... I'm convinced I was selected as an American Field Service exchange student from Topeka High School, summer of 1961, because I had this archaeology background. Mm -hmm. And so I was picked from other, many other students for this honor. Without the archaeology background, that would never have happened. And of course, that unfolded in my life as a, I, I went back to Turkey then as a Peace Corps volunteer and then back again as a Fulbright scholar doing my doctoral dissertation research. And I trace all that back to the Kansas State Historical Society archaeology crew and Jim McHenry Shovelbum. 
<laughs> Thank you, Mr. McHenry, for telling us about your experience at unearthing um, one of our most significant artifacts at the Kansas Historical Society. Well, thank you, Merle. It's been a pleasure visiting with you about it. I well, I've enjoyed the opportunity. I've no proofs that it's right because you're mine. I walk the line. My name is Donna Ray Pearson, and the answer to today's Kansas quiz is the first Kansas colored. They would be the first blacks to see battle and the first to die in action in the Civil War. To keep me on your side. You give me calls for love that I can't hide. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hello. And reference librarian Sarah Keckeisen. Hello. Today we salute the British royal family by connecting William Allen White, a small town newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to Kate Middleton, the fiance of Britain's young king in waiting. And the other one, not Charles, but the other one, Prince William. <laughs> Sarah, can you give us a little background on Ms. Middleton? Of course I would be pleased to. <clears throat> the strikingly beautiful Catherine Elizabeth Middleton was born near London in 1982. She has two younger siblings, Pippa and James. Pippa. Pippa. <laughs> so British. That it's probably short for Philippa, which is even worse than <laughs> Pippa. <laughs> the daughter of a flight attendant and a flight dispatcher, the Middletons were of rather middle-class origin. But this all changed in 1987 when Kate's mother founded a party decoration company, company that is today the largest in the United Kingdom. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Party decoration. The party decorating empire. Wow. The new wealth allowed Kate to study art history at the historically upper class University <laughs> of St. Andrews, where she met a young Prince William of Windsor in 2005. And clearly she was planning on marrying up because. Speaking from experience, you don't major in art history if you expect to ever get a job. (laughs) (laughs) But you do expect to marry up. (laughs) I don't think you worry about it if your parents own a party party decorating empire. That's 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 when you. I mean, you go to St. Andrews to to major in. Did you know they're going to save a bundle on the wedding? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I was reading an article actually, and there's some debate whether the party, whether her parents' party decorating company, should be involved in the wedding. Is it classy enough, or is it well, like if they lived in America? They could. Yeah, that's true, and they would because that's the way we. <laughs> we look for discounts. That's right. <laughs> Save money. Anyway, they must have reconciled because in 2010 their engagement was announced, and on April 29th, the two will be wed at Just Westminster Abbey in the presence of British royalty heads of state from throughout the realm, ex-boyfriends and girlfriends, <laughs> and college drinking buddies. What a Sounds shindig. a good time. Right around the corner. <laughs> you know, I think it's going to be a fun party. <laughs> Their wedding is expected to be the social and media event of the decade, rivaled only by the marriage of future father-in-law Prince Charles to Lady Diana Spencer in 1981. And Sarah, you have some some memories of that uh, of that uh, wedding yes. to end all weddings. That, uh, yes, um. uh, and they're bittersweet. You know, <laughs> um, I was one of those people who, in the pre-video recording era, got up in the middle of the night to watch Charles and Diana get married and there were of course tears in my eyes because I was really supposed to be the one who was marrying (laughs) Prince Charles. Alas, 
But so so my opinion of the current wedding is maybe a little bit colored by that disappointment. Uh-huh. But um, it should be yours and Mary and Kate Middleton. Do I know <laughs> indeed, and that's probably right. Yeah. I mean, do you think that there's kind of a bigger social impact on that 1981 wedding? As in, I mean, what it's, it is a wedding industry today, mm-hmm. um, and and I kind of think it feeds from that huge iconic wedding of the royal family in 1981. I mean, yeah. that's the high water mark. That is the goal that the entire wedding industry. They want to create that for mm-hmm. every woman, for every married couple out there. <laughs> but mostly for the woman. Yeah. Uh, Merle, this is a very insightful comment you have made. And I, Thank you. I, I tend to agree with you. Um, although I think this, this current wedding, just from the stuff I've read about it, and, which isn't really much because I'm not married. Prince William, that's a little freaky. But... Um, uh, I think this one seems a lot more normal. Uh-huh. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the the whole event planning seems more normal. Um, the couple seem a little bit more normal. The the kids are about the same age, um, mm-hmm. and they are also uh, in their late twenties, so they've had a little bit of life experience that that they they can. All right, I've done that. Now I'm ready for my wedded bliss. Sure. That sort of thing. So this this wedding might. That might go. I would argue that it's no accident that this is a more normal wedding in that I think this time they this time around they said uh-huh. let's not blow this into something yeah. that will bite us later on. They have learned from their they let's, can be taught. Yeah. Let's, yes. Uh-huh. Right. Um, I think you might have something there. All right. Um, thank you, Sarah. And now we'll move on to the game. I don't know if you know this, but you're going to be the contestant in the game. As the contestant, <laughs> thanks for telling me. You will hear two chains of connection between. Do I win, Prince Charles? Kate, no, no. Oh. We might be able to dig up. Not even Andrew. On it. Um, we give you two chains of connection between Kate and William Allen White. You have to pick which one is true. Mm-hmm. Um, Nikayla, you want to go first? Yes, I will go first. All right. So, upon marrying Prince William later this month, Kate Middleton will become the granddaughter-in-law of Queen Elizabeth II. Okay. And before Queen Elizabeth II... Is this a genealogy? That sounds... <laughs> it is. Okay, that sounds, I'm ready to go. sounds stressful right there. <laughs> <laughs> well, before Queen Elizabeth took the throne, she frequently stood in for her father, King George VI, at public events because his health was beginning to fail. Mm-hmm. And in October of 1951, Elizabeth toured Canada and even paid a visit to President Harry Truman in mm-hmm. Washington, D.C. while she was on the trip. Well, several years before, in 1945, Truman spent a private half hour with a newspaper editor named William Lindsay White, who was the son of William Allen White. Wow. Wow. So, Kate Middleton, Queen Elizabeth, Harry Truman, William Lindsay, William Allen. Uh, okay. Is that true? <laughs> Hold on, that's my turn. All right. All right. All right. <clears throat> some sources have revealed, it's all, it's all a bit under wrap, but some sources have revealed that Kate and William's wedding cake will be prepared by the highly respected cake designer Fiona Kearns using ingredients provided by the McVitties, a, a historic <laughs> Scottish cake mix company. Which sounds a little like McVittles. <laughs> Do not laugh. Okay. Do not laugh. I didn't name it. <laughs> First started in 1894, McVitie's is today a subsidiary of United Biscuit, which I think is the funnier of the names. <laughs> William, both William Allen White and his son William Lindsay were well known for celebrating the English tradition of tea. 
In 2002, the Kansas Historical Society acquired contents of White's home in Emporia. There, they discovered several unused containers of United Biscuit Mix, which they were probably having, having snacks with their tea, uh, most likely acquired from William Lindsay's travels to London. Well, this is just like wait, wait, don't tell me. Exactly. <laughs> this is great. Uh, not to mess this. with copyright, but okay. I will say we were inspired okay. by something. I love this. Um, you know, this whole McVitie's thing is a great story because we actually became quite fans of McVitie's biscuits when we were in Ireland and Scotland. We we bought boxes and kept them in the car so we didn't have to buy food anywhere. Um, I like Michaela's Michaela's story better it's and i'm gonna pick you that's correct that's correct, oh, that's correct. Yeah. is totally fictionally made yeah. i mean there's this lady fiona she is going to be the designer mcvitties will be doing the cakes for the reception later words i guess Aww. they didn't want instant cake mix for the wedding and mm. that's great and mcvitties biscuits are wonderful are they pretty good <laughs> yes. united yes. biscuits does nice work yes indeed <laughs> oh and we should tell people that though we didn't find boxes of united biscuit mix in the house we did find unopened cans of Turtle soup. Yeah, and sardines. And sardines. Yeah, yeah. that's so, what the that's what the whites were snacking on. Yeah, nothing is tasty. This program is brought to you by. <laughs> 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 All right, uh, Nikayla, would you like to issue the challenge for next uh, for the next episode? You bet. For our next episode, we recognize the 150th anniversary of the Civil War by connecting William Allen White to the Articles of Secession. In late 1860, South Carolina published legal documents that effectively dissolved its connection to the United States of America. How could they? (laughs) (laughs) Several other states soon followed. (laughs) With the war between constitutional lawyers in full swing, the rest of the nation was soon to follow. So come back in two weeks when we connect William Allen White to the Articles of Secession. Was White a witness to the signing of this bizarro constitution? (laughs) You'll find Time to make your house yeah. your own. Pick up I'm the phone. Coming home, I'm coming home. Tell the world that I'm coming home. That concludes episode 131, Uncivil Wars. If you would like to see images of the saber used by Major Brown to cut down racial barriers, or examine a 5,000-year-old sculpted clay face from central Kansas, go to our website, kshs.org. In the next episode, Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman and I examine a bottle containing the first wheat seed brought to Kansas. It was hand-carried halfway around the world by Russian immigrants. Does this story explain how the wheat industry blossomed in Kansas? Or is it just another tall tale about magic seeds? Find out in two weeks. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. Wash away.